morning, family. How are you today? Good? All right, good. And if you're a guest of our family, if you're a friend to the family, this is, you don't know anybody in the family and you just happen to find yourself here today, we just want you to know that we're really glad that you're with us. We're really glad. And uh, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to remember again today that Jesus, like Ashley said, is not just our rescuing king who died in our place. He's our risen king who lives on our behalf. He's a good king. And so we're glad you're here to celebrate those realities with us this morning. You might notice that we have more children here with us this morning. We purposefully chose not to have an elementary class today uh, for either hour. So we have our, um, some of our young, younger people with us. And kids, if you missed it, all the way in the back, there's a little white table. Actually, Mr. Ron's going to walk down, I think, and pass them out. There's kind of an activity guide for you to walk you through the service. It's got questions like, what songs did you hear? What words did you hear in the sermon? What questions do you have? Draw a picture about what you heard, and then you can talk about that later with your parents. Or if you have a question and you want to ask me, then please come see me when we're all done, and I'd be happy to talk through your question with you, okay? So kids, we're glad that you're in here with us too. We really are. All right, let's pray, and we will get right down to work this morning. Father, we thank you for choosing to establish a plan for our rescue instead of leaving us in um, judgment and condemnation for our rebellion against you, an insane rebellion from a good creator. So we're rebel kids, and you choose to pursue us and rescue us in Jesus rather than showing us judgment. And, and Jesus, you took that judgment in our place, and we thank you for submitting to the will of the Father for um, for obeying and for pursuing us out of love for your Father and out of love for us, for doing the work necessary to adopt us in as your younger brothers and sisters. Um, thank you for that beautiful line that you spoke to Mary in the garden. You didn't just say you were ascending back to your Father. You looked at her in the eyes and said, I'm going back to my Father and your Father. We're in the family. You are our Father, God, and Jesus, you are our older rescuing brother and we thank you for giving us your spirit to bring us to life and to sustain our lives. Father, I pray that every heart in here this morning would be encouraged as we look to you in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was not the feeling of completeness that I so needed, but the feeling of not being empty. Those words were written by Jonathan Foer, a novelist and a creative writing instructor at NYU. Listen again, Jonathan wrote, it was not the feeling of completeness I so needed, but the feeling of not being empty. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever at any point in your life felt that way? Isn't success supposed to eradicate an empty heart? When you get what you long for in life, isn't it supposed to follow that your empty longing heart is eradicated and you're satisfied? After one of his far too many Super Bowl appearances and wins, far too many, yeah, thank you. In case you don't know his name, but you all know his name, don't you? I'm not gonna say it out loud, I'm just kidding. So that's Tom Brady, and he publicly expressed this. He asked, this was a public forum. This was a press conference, and he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this, this is what it is. 
I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, he says, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Isn't success supposed to eradicate an empty heart? The interviewer went on to ask Brady, hey, what's the answer, dog? And Brady replied, man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. 10 years later, Brady was asked the same question. He'd won a few more Super Bowls in that time. So the question was posed again, and he admitted humbly, he stood there and said, you know, I don't know. I still don't know. Isn't success supposed to eradicate an empty heart and give the answer to that question? I wish I knew. That's actually a really pretty, pretty courageous thing to say publicly. So no judgment against Tom Brady and full recognition that we all feel that way sometime. In fact, a little kudos because most of us would not give voice to thoughts and feelings like that publicly in the way that he did. So some courage there. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Over the last month, we've been exploring a book of the Bible known as Philippians. It's a letter, really, not a book. And the guy who wrote it, Paul, was, honestly, he was once just like Tom Brady. I mean, he didn't play football, and he didn't win any Super Bowls. But he was at the top of his game. He was born to the right parents. He was professionally successful. He was a household name. You could have put Paul's picture up on the screen in your worship gathering in that generation, and you wouldn't have to say his name out loud. I mean, they talked about him around the dinner table. Everybody knew who he was. He had it all together. Uh, religiously, even, he had it all together. He was the rare combination of a man's man, but a, re a religious man, too, a, a zealous religious man. He was humble, too. Here's what he said about himself. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in themselves, or he said in the flesh, you know what he said? I got more. I have more. That's Paul, right? If any of you think that you have reason for self-confidence, I have more than you do. He'd fit right in with your culture here, wouldn't he? You're right in with your shop at your workplace. He's got more. But an encounter with the resurrected Jesus would change everything for Paul. He would actually go on to say of himself and his life, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's a complete reversal. Paul, who had it all, became convinced without a doubt that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Let's read this part of Paul's letter now. Um, I'll read out loud. You can follow along. Let's listen to Paul's story and consider together why Jesus is better. This is Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you again is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here they are. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. 
As to zeal, everybody knows I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have willingly, gladly suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, like really know him, not about him, but know him, and know the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So as we consider Jesus is better, let me just give you three words that we can kind of hang our thoughts on as we work through this portion of his letter. Repeat, reject, and reason. Repeat, reject, and reason. You notice the beginning of chapter three, Paul begins with what word? Finally. He's not wrapping up. He's not wrapping up. He's a preacher. And when you go to seminary in the first year, the only thing they teach you is that the word finally is a conjunction. It's like saying and or furthermore or but. He's not. In fact, if you skip all the way to chapter four, he uses the word again. And then there's a whole nother chapter. Okay. So just a little little inside secret of the trade. What he's saying is, finally, guys, look, based on everything I've told you so far, again, we've said this before, Paul's an older brother to these guys in the faith, especially almost a dad in the faith, but at least an older brother. And to us, he still serves us in this way. So he's just looking at us as younger brothers and sisters saying, finally, guys, listen, based on everything I've written to you so far, here's what I really need to tell you right now. Here's the most important thing that you get based on everything I've written in this letter. Finally, that's what he's saying. And here's our first word, repeat. Paul's going to say, what I need to tell you again, I'm repeating it. You need to repeat it, and it's safe for you. It's safe for you that this is repeated regularly in your life. Let me ask you a question you don't have to answer out loud because uh, there's a reason you wear earbuds and you probably don't want to confess this publicly. But what's your favorite workout song? Yeah, see, you know, you don't have to answer out loud. What's your favorite workout song? What's your jam? Um, I don't really have workout songs. I have sermon jams. Um, but nobody's in the building, so I don't need earbuds. They just, they just play loud. And full confession, thanks, Grant. It's, uh, it changes every other week or so. It was Blue on Black this week, the new cover. Um, I won't tell you who covered it, but Blue on Black. That was my sermon jam this week. Just on repeat, just on, on repeat. Paul's saying to you and to me, guys, listen, I have a new track that I want you to put on repeat. This is your workout jam. This is, this is the track that I want. Uh, You just keep hitting that little almost circle arrow thing and just keep repeating this song. Make this your jam. I'm writing this to you again. He'd already told them multiple times. Paul loves repetition. He repeats. Guys, listen, he repeats what what is crucial to your life. He's not a haphazard writer. He's intentional and he's directed by the Holy Spirit. So when we see repetition at Paul's fingertips, This is our older brother saying to you, guys, this is vital to your life. 
He says, rejoice in the Lord. That's what's vital to your heart. He's saying, find your joy in Jesus. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Look to Jesus for your joy. Look to Jesus for your identity. Look to Jesus for your hope. And look to Jesus for your purpose. He is better than anything. Better than anyone. Better than anything anything else. Jesus is better. So put the full weight of your expectation of joy and hope and identity and purpose in Jesus. He's better. So Paul's saying it's safe for you to hear this over and over and over again. This is the track that you need on repeat. Why? Because your heart naturally sings a different song, and it's a contradictory song. So you need to talk to your heart. You put this on track, you put this track on repeat, and you turn the volume up so it drowns out the song that your heart naturally sings. Jesus is better. Your heart's not the only problem. You, you live in a culture that sings a multitude of different songs to you as well. So put this track on and turn up the volume and sing it louder. Jesus is better. Put the full weight of your joy in him. The song that your heart naturally sings, the song that our culture sings, will cause you to question every day whether or not Jesus actually is better. It is safe for you to have this on repeat. It's safe for your heart to keep this track on repeat. And guys, I love that Paul says to us to write this to you again. You notice what he says? It's no trouble to me. It's no trouble to me. What a, what a friend is that? What a friend. Man, I need people like that in my life. Don't you? I need, I need to be surrounded by people like this who are willing to look me in the eyes and say, it ain't no trouble to me, dog. Like, I will repeat this for you all day long, every day. I, I see that you're discouraged. I see that you're singing a different song. I see that you're looking somewhere else. Um, it's no trouble to me to be this friend to you. That's one of the ways that our father is so good to us, guys. When he adopts us in, he doesn't just adopt us in as single sons and daughters. We are adopted into a family because it is safe for you and because the culture of his family is supposed to be one that says it is no trouble to me but we grow weary pretty quick, right? We, we tap out pretty quick. But as the gospel shapes our hearts, this is what we will increasingly say to each other. I know you're hurting. And I know I've said this to you before. And rather than being frustrated that I have to say it again, it's no trouble. It's no trouble to me. Let me ask you, do you, do you know Jesus in this way? Do you know him? If you know him, you will be growing to know that Jesus is better. And this is the track that will be on repeat in your heart, but also on your lips for your friends. Let me ask you, if you do know Jesus and you do know him and you do know that he's better, can I ask you this question? Can you articulate the reasons why Jesus is better to your friends? Can we sit down and have a normal, not weird, awkward conversation and be able to talk through all the things that we experience and bring it right back to, man, Jesus is so good to us and he's better. Paul's gonna help us with that this morning. But again, that first word, repeat. This is, this, is, this is the big idea in this piece of the letter. And really you could say for the entire letter, repeat this over and over again to your own heart and to each other. The second word, reject. We reject any other foundational message because what Paul has just written to us is for the Christian, our filter for all of life. Jesus is better. So everything's got to be filtered through that. And as a follower of Jesus, I reject any worldview or any personal conviction that is contrary to that, to that, to that message that Jesus is better. In case you couldn't tell by his word choice, and I'm sure you could as we read, 
And I'm sure as you kind of heard a few words, and you're like, man, that really sounds like name calling. Is Paul calling people names here? Yes. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Paul is just a little bit fired up, just a little bit fired up as he writes this portion of the letter. And let me help you understand why. Um, Christianity has deep Jewish roots. You could say exclusive Jewish roots. Um, Jesus, in fact, was Jewish. Paul himself was Jewish. All what we would call the fathers of the faith, preceding Paul and, and Jesus, all the prophets, right? they're all from the Jewish community. So the first missions work was all done in Jewish contexts. All the first churches that were planted after Jesus' resurrection, just like this, in Jewish communities, Jewish towns, um, Jewish leaders, Jewish culture, all of it. This was the culture that the church was birthed in. And so, man, even today, it's hard to reach into other cultures and carry a core message without carrying in all the other trappings of your own culture, right? Like, here we are in Okinawa. We can't even really engage effectively into another culture simply because of language. But let's say we did overcome the language barrier. We think we've got it. We're really not even halfway there yet. There are some cultural dynamics, actually, that are more important than language dynamics, So imagine being in that first century church as a Jewish person and having a heart to reach out beyond that community. Man, that was hard. And so they begin, and there were many well-intentioned missionaries, but the problem was they began carrying expectations from the Jewish community with them along with the gospel, okay? So there were things like dietary restrictions. Hey, if you're going to be a good Christian, you can't eat this, Or, in fact, you need to give this food up in order to become a Christian. It might have been said that way. There were holiday expectations that were carried in. Hey, you know you can't work for 24 hours on this day anymore, right? Like a Christian can't do this and you can't do that. Um, You've read the Old Testament probably, and you know that a lot of it is just straight up law, right? Not just civil law, but like laws about your clothes, And all of these things. And so there were many people that were carrying these things along and saying, well, this is all part of what it means to be a Christian. And then there's circumcision. Imagine you're a first century Jew and you're going to try to share the gospel with people outside of a Jewish context. You think it's difficult to share the gospel now? (laughs) I'm, I'm just saying, wow. Like, just think about that for a minute. And so that expectation was carried in, like, you are not a real Christian unless you do this. Wow. But you know what? Sometimes we judge people who live before us so harshly and outside of the context of their time. But we have to be gentle and think carefully about, man, what would have that been like for us? So there were very many, very many well-intentioned missionaries. But what started out as well-intentioned became anti-gospel in many church plants just like ours. And many young Christians were being crushed under the weight of, oh my goodness, like all of this? I thought the gospel was good news that Jesus had done all of the work on my behalf in order for me to be forgiven and adopted in and kept by the Father. I didn't know about all of this. And guys, to be honest with you, I can't do that. I can't do that. So you could see why Paul, who was the one who started this church and many other churches, was getting a little bit fired up that people that he had led to the faith were being crushed in their souls and even turned away from Jesus by the weight of these expectations. 
The gospel says, not only is Jesus better, but he is enough. He's done everything necessary for us to be forgiven, adopted, and kept. But in these communities, the gospel was becoming, Jesus is good, but you need to be really good too. So here's a list of practices that you'll need to keep in order to be accepted and kept. The problem was, Man, they had the freedom to participate in these things if they wanted to. You, you could too. If you really want to, if you re- I wouldn't encourage you to, but you could read back through the entire Old Testament and you could try to keep the law. You have the freedom to. It's not necessary and it would cr- you would be crushed under the weight. That's kind of the point of the law to demonstrate to you that you, you can't do it, you need a rescuer. But you have the freedom to. The problem is when it becomes obligation or expectation, command, that you have to do these things in order to be accepted by the Father. Because listen, all of these things existed to point two ways, to point to Jesus, and he became the fulfillment of all of these things, and to point to our inadequacy or our need for rescue, right? So you can imagine why Paul is so fired up about this. In fact, this is why he says, watch out for anyone adding to the gospel in any way. And he calls them the dogs the evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Let's take the first one, the dogs. Um, Culturally, I know it sounds really rude. I mean, we use this term as a term of endearment. I call my boys dog. What's up, dog? Like we say dog to each other. Well, it's kind of one way, but all the time, right? Hey, dog. Um, So it's it's not totally rude. It kind of is, and it definitely sounds that way to our ears, but Jews often referred to non-Jews in this way. It was just kind of a cultural expression to say, look, you're not really in the family. You're not at the table. You're outside the community where the dogs would be away from the table, right? The kids are at the table with their parents, and so the dogs are outside. That's really all they're saying. So notice what Paul's doing this, though. He's flipping it on its head, and he's saying to these guys, uh, like, this is a shocking role reversal. You think you're in God's family, but you're not. The evildoers, this is another stunning flip. They consider themselves to be doers of good, but by adding to the gospel, by telling people that they need to do a bunch of good stuff to be accepted and kept by God, Paul says you have become evildoers. Guys, listen. Many religious people are moral evildoers. For most of my life, I thought I was a follower of Jesus. I was a very moral person but I was sanitary on the outside, but my heart was a pool of evil. I was a moralized evildoer in a religious context. You add to the gospel, you take away from the gospel. Worse, you you do that for other people. It's evil. It's evil. Then Paul says they're mutilators. He's saying to them, you may be circumcised. And for the Jewish community, circumcision really simply was just a sign that you're in God's family. It was a sign. I'm in the family. So he's saying they may be circumcised, but it is nothing more than an empty ritual to you because it is not true of you in your heart. It's just outward conformity. There is no life in your heart and you are not actually a part of God's family. It's not a true sign for you. It's not a true sign. Speaking of not true signs, do you see the um, one hour, 200 yen? That is not a true sign. Um, It's just our parking, we told you about the parking wars, we're escalating, baby. Um, You can put signs up all day long, but if it's not true on the paperwork, if it's not true inside, that's a false sign. That's what Paul's saying about their circumcision. 
You can do all you want to do. You do not become a Christian by following rules or changing anything cosmetically or anything on the outside. That's not how this thing works. And then he says, we are God's family. Now he's, he's, he's back. He's talking about himself and he's talking about these young Christians in this small church plant in Philippi. He says, we are God's family, the, the true circumcision. Um, it's been a circumcision of the heart, not the body. It's a true spiritual reality. Physical signs are just meant to be indicators of what's true spiritually, but that we can't see with our eyes. Like baptism later, same idea. So he says, we are the true circumcision. There has been a circumcision of your heart. The gospel is not, about, is not what you do to fix your life. It's what God does to give you life. He gives you a new heart. He circumcises the old heart, if it will, if you will. He really rips it out and gives you a, a new heart. And the new heart expresses itself this way. You're like, how do I know if I'm really in the family? Like if the sign is true, he shows us. There are three very specific statements right here. He says, you're in the family if you worship by the spirit of God. That's Paul's way of saying, if the spirit has changed you from the inside, from within, where the spirit of God has to do it because you can't do it. You can't change yourself inside. You can't give yourself a new heart. The spirit of God does this. And this new heart is oriented on Jesus. In your rebellion, your heart is oriented on yourself and what you want. And so the new heart is increasingly oriented on Jesus. You know if you're a Christian, this is instantly true of you, but it's a true reality that's worked out very slowly over your lifetime, right? The rebel tendencies die hard. But this new heart is oriented on Jesus. You love him. It's, you're glad to obey him. It's not resentful obedience. Um, it's a recognition that you don't need cosmetic surgery. You need a straight-up heart transplant, and it's the Spirit of God who accomplishes that work. Okay, first, that's the first thing. An acknowledgement that I need the Spirit, the Spirit's given me a new heart, and I'm completely dependent upon Him. And that heart expresses itself this way, glory in Christ. It's just Paul's way of saying that the full weight of your hope, the full weight of your joy, the full weight of your identity, all of your boasting, all of your confidence shifts from yourself and what you have done to Jesus and what He has done on your behalf. That's what it means to glory in Christ. And then here's perhaps the most, like that's kind of something that goes in your heart, on in your heart. Other people can't really see that unless you, maybe people can hear that, but they're not going to see it. But here's what we see. Uh, we put no confidence in the flesh. That's Paul's way of saying me. I don't put any confidence in myself anymore. In other words, I acknowledge that I contribute nothing to my rescue, but inability and need. And Jesus does everything. Can I just give you a little clarity on this whole no confidence thing, though? Because you're, maybe you're reading this and you're like, wait, Christians can't have any confidence? Like, no, I, I don't really understand that. Uh, here's a little, just a little clarity. Paul is not saying that Christians should not be confident or competent people. Okay? In fact, followers of Jesus should be the most confident. The difference is your confidence has shifted from yourself to Christ, and that will increase your self-confidence, for example, because it's not rooted in you anymore. Your identity is, um, it's not constantly changing and shifting. It's, I find my identity now in who my dad is and what he says about me, and that never changes, no matter my performance. I can fail when I'm still my dad's son, and I can fail when my dad still loves me. And competence, look, 
We're all created the way we're created. I am not the sharpest tool in the shed, so that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I do recognize now that ultimately my boss is Jesus. Like I work for Jesus. I don't, I don't work for you. Um, you may be my boss, but um, I work for Jesus. And working for him, I work for you. But because I love him and because I care about his reputation, um, I'm going to work as hard as I can and learn whatever I can. I will give myself to competency for his fame and for your good. But as for Jesus... So please hear, Christians are confident and competent people in Christ. In fact, man, if you're here this morning, uh, yes to confidence and competence, especially if you fly over my house. Like, please don't if you're not competent. Just don't even get in that thing and leave Kadena. Stay right there, right? So be confident and give yourself to competence. So I, I just wanted to, we just need to acknowledge that. So now let's say, let's acknowledge what he is saying when he says no confidence. Um, he's saying this. Apart from Christ, I look at myself and I say, I don't need saving. That's confidence in myself. So in Jesus, that confidence is shifted. While I do need saving, Jesus is the one who does it. And so rather than saying, oh no, I do need saving, but I got it. I can keep these rules. I can be a good person. I can do all of these things. No, it's rejection of any confidence in my work and full confidence in Jesus. And there's one more shift that needs to happen. I'm no longer confident that I can satisfy the longings of my heart. Can't do it. I've tried for a lifetime. I've pursued this and her and them and those things and that thing. I cannot satisfy my own heart. That confidence has to shift to Jesus as well. Uh, author Sarah Dessen said, there's just something obvious about emptiness, even when you try to convince yourself otherwise. Can I just ask you this morning to stop trying to convince yourself that you're not empty and trust what Jesus says about you and that you are, in fact, empty. In fact, you were created to be satisfied in him and in your rebellion where you are not satisfied in him, you will never be satisfied in anything or anyone else. You are empty apart from Jesus. But look, if anyone should have this kind of confidence that we just talked about, it would be Paul. But then he encountered the risen Christ and his self-confidence was exchanged for confidence in Jesus. That's because the resurrection changes everything, guys. The reality of the resurrection changes everything for us. Look, he, here, here's our third word. So we've had repeat, right? We need to keep this thing on repeat for our safety and for the good of our family. We need to reject any, any other premise that begins with anything but Jesus is better. And now finally, um, reason. Paul, Paul, Paul's going to give us reasons why he had confidence in himself. And then he's going to tell us, give us reasons why uh, our confidence actually should be in Christ. And look, Paul does the math. Paul did the math every day. He did it. And Paul came to this conclusion, right? Here's what Common Core led him to. He was good. Paul was good. Paul was really good. Paul was better than you are. But Jesus is better still right? That's, that's, that's the way this rolls. So Paul was really good. Look, if you worked with Paul, you'd want to be him. And let me just tell you right now, it would not be the other way around. Sorry. I'm just sorry. Uh, you would want to be Paul. He does not feel that way about you. Um, and he gives seven reasons here. Four of those reasons are by birth, and three of those reasons are by choice. The first one, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Again, circumcision was that sign that I'm in God's family, so I'm in, I'm good. Um, he said, I'm, I'm of the people of Israel. That was God's chosen people. He was born into this privilege. He was born into it. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's just further distinguishment. Like the tribe of Benjamin was the best tribe to belong to. Uh, they were the faithful tribe historically. Like they, when everybody else is failing, they typically were still obeying God, right? Typically. Um, 
They were the tribe of the first king for God's people. They're kind of like Texans. I mean, honestly, like the tribe of Benjamin, like it just, I'm, a te- I'm from Texas, right? Like that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. And speaking of Texans, Paul says Hebrew of the Hebrews. So what he's saying here is, it's not just that I come from this. Um, my heart is still here. Like you come from it too, but I actually still speak the language. Like you can't go back home and order in a Hebrew restaurant because you, you haven't cared to keep up with our heart. I'm still in the family. Like I follow the culture and I know the language. Um, it's not just my origin, it's my ongoing practice. Texans are just like that, even when they show up on Okinawa. And then they have this little thing, are you from Texas or are you a Texan? Like, so Paul's a Texan, um, Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, that's just a cultural standard of excellence. The word Pharisee actually means separated and distinguished. I mean, just humility all over the place. I'm better than you. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That sounds bad because we're like, well, yo, we're the church. But again, in a Jewish context, that was a really honorable and, and good thing, actually. Because to persecute the church, followers of Jesus, that was to honor Yahweh, God, because Jesus claimed to be God. So they're like, hey, we need to shut that down. That's blasphemy. You do know that's why he was killed, right? You can't, that's blasphemy. You're not God. So in a Jewish context, man, this was a really, you'd want your kid to grow up to be Paul. Like this was really well-pleasing to God, they thought defending God and their tradition. As to righteousness, blameless conformity. This was a very public thing. Like Paul was basically inviting his people to fact check him. Like, go ahead, fact check me. Like, this is my public record. You won't find anything contrary. Like Paul actually could have run for public office and no skeletons would have come out of his closet. Like he's electable. Paul's, Paul's this guy. So if all of these things were enough, Paul would have been good with God. No need to be saved. He could have saved himself. And there would have been no emptiness in Paul's heart. But it wasn't good enough. Paul was good, not good enough. Jesus was better. And Jesus alone is good enough to save. And so one day, everything changed for Paul. There are hints of that day in verse 7 with a singular word. It says, but. Acts 9, 36, here's that, or 9, 3 through 6, it'll be on the screen, here's that day. It says, now as Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. A little later in the chapter, it says, Paul, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, Jesus is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Guys, the resurrected Jesus changed everything in Paul's life. Complete reorientation on Jesus. Paul realized that he was good but Jesus was better. Look what he says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul had realized that Jesus was better than even his best, far superior to the point that he said, what I used to count as personal gain, I now count as personal loss. He's talking about all of his success. He's talking about all these things he just articulated. Why would he say that? Why, why, when our heart is reoriented on Jesus, do we look at the successes of our life and what we used to call good and, and gain, we now look at those things and say loss? Well, Paul's going to tell us, he says, I count everything as loss because, here it is, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We will never say those words with Paul. 
if we only know Jesus as an historical figure, and he is an an historical figure. You can read credible non-Christian historians who will attest to the reality of Jesus' life. You have to wrestle with that. Jesus lived. It's in Roman history, right? It's in Roman history. But you'll never say this if you only know Jesus as an historical figure. You'll never say this if you only know Jesus as a good moral example from your Sunday school days. You'll never say this if you only know of Jesus from Bible stories, and you'll, you'll only say it when you know him. You'll say it when you know Jesus as your Lord, your King. When you can say of Jesus, he's my Lord, when you invoke my, when he's my, my King, my Lord, then then you will know his surpassing worth and you will know that Jesus is better. Can I ask you, have you ever asked him to show himself to you in that way? Guys, if you're here this morning as a skeptic, as a cynic, as a doubter, as somebody who's far superior to me intellectually and I'll never try to engage with you and win any arguments because I won't, um, have you ever asked Jesus to show himself to you in this way? He will. And when you encounter the resurrected Christ, everything will change for you Everything will change for you. As Paul says, man, he's so much better, so much so that I'm going to say this, for his sake, I have gladly suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, rubbish. That's a nice Sunday school translation. Uh, Paul actually just used the word for, he's talking, kind of talking about garbage, but not really. But what he's saying is all the successes, all the accolades, all the awesome, they are now worth the same as yesterday's garbage. Uh, David Bunn, thank you for that contribution in our sermon prep Slack channel. You can collaborate in our sermon prep if you want to. That was, uh, David, David observed that as a good observation. But did you know the translation of this word rubbish? Do you know what it more likely is? It's not garbage. Do you know what it is? Poop. Poop. I just said it in church. I know all your kids are in here, so that's, that's the only word that I'm going to invoke this morning. But can I just tell you this? Paul's using much, more, much stronger language. You know what he's saying. It's poop. Um, so we have a two-year-old boy in our home right now. So poop is a common word. Um, and that it's used at the most inappropriate, awkward, and honestly, as a dad, really funny times. Really, it's hard to discipline and kind of shape that because it's like, wow, <laughs> wow. But what's Paul saying? He's saying all of these good things, all of these, like, what are you saying about me, Paul? Just like a pile of poop? Like, what, what exactly are you saying? What's going on? A guy named Gerald Hawthorne observed this. He said, in the process of reevaluation, right, that heart reorientation, Paul perceived with horror, horror, that the things he had once viewed as benefiting him had in reality been working to destroy him because they were blinding him to his need for the real righteousness which God required. Guys, listen, I know that I am speaking to a room full of successful people. Most of you are exceptionally successful in what you do. Even just leaving the context you were in America and choosing the career path that you did, you're successful. I know that I'm speaking to a room full of successful people. So let me just ask you a few questions. What if all of your personal accomplishments are actually keeping you from what you need the most? What if your focused pursuit of personal achievement is actually blinding you from the one who deserves your greatest pursuit, Jesus? What if success has given you a false sense of self-sufficiency? And let me just ask you one more question. Why are you like Tom Brady, except maybe you haven't vocalized it out loud? Why is your heart still so empty? 
if you are so successful? Why? It was for Paul. It was all good. Paul was killing it. He was absolutely killing it. He was successful. He was the guy who in your world would get the meritorious promotions. His rack would always be better than your rack and you'd never catch up. He's the untouchable Instagram mom. You'll never be like her, ladies. He's the kid who does their family proud in every sense, right? He's that guy. That's Paul, successful by every cultural measure. And he was blinded and empty. Paul didn't embrace Jesus because he was failing in life. Paul gladly embraced Jesus because Jesus was so far better than Paul's best. Jesus actually blinded Paul. He took his eyesight away on the road. He took it away when he showed up. He took Paul's eyesight away so that Paul would have to be given new eyes, not just physically, but spiritually. And Paul would gain new sight and he would see everything differently to include Jesus. And so Paul's eyes would no longer tell him that he was the best and had it all together. Paul's eyes would look at all of his best and say, wow, even that is not enough. And Jesus is so much better. Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I can in order that I might gain Jesus. And listen, guys, be found in him. You have to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Guys, that is your greatest need. That is my greatest need. To be righteous means that you can be reconciled to the Father who created you. To have any unrighteousness means that you can't get anywhere close to your dad cannot hear his voice, cannot feel his love, cannot be gathered in by his arms, cannot be comforted by him, cannot live for him, which is your created purpose. Any unrighteousness keeps you from him. Paul didn't have any righteousness. He thought he did. I don't have any righteousness. I thought I, I, I did spend most of my life thinking that I had a ton of righteousness and I needed a little bit of Jesus. And then I got married and I realized I don't have any righteousness. And then I had kids and realized I'm in the deficit in righteousness. We don't have any, but it's the one thing that we need. And Jesus has it. Jesus is better. He's our only hope. And guys, that righteousness is yours only by faith. You can't do anything for it. Your dad will never look at you and be like, wow, you just made yourself righteous. Your dad looks at you and says, you're, you're hopelessly unrighteous. So here's Jesus. He, you're, he's he's going to give you his righteousness and he's going to take your rebellion. And that's how you get into the family. Paul said, I give all of this up so that I can know Jesus. Notice he says, know him, like not know about him know him, right? So Copeland's were at my house yesterday, said goodbye to Josh. I know Josh. He's a very good friend of mine. Um, if you don't yet know Josh, now you know about him, and I can tell you he's a good friend, but you'll never know him. He has gone from Okinawa, and you'll probably never come back, right? Because that's true for most of you but you only know about him. Paul's saying, you gotta know him. You've got to know him. This is a personal relationship and you need to know the power of his resurrection because only through the power of his resurrection can your dead heart be brought to life. Only through the power of his resurrection can your rebel, rebel tendencies be crushed and weeded out of your heart. You can't do it. Only through the power of his resurrection can you find hope and your heart be satisfied. Only through the power of his resurrection can you be brought home to your father and can you be recreated in the image of Christ, which is so desperately marred in you because of your rebellion. 
The power of the resurrection is yours, not just when you believe in Christ for a moment, but every single day to live as a follower of Jesus in his strength and not yours. That's the beauty of Christianity. You are called to something that you can't do in your own strength, but Jesus says, I'm gonna give you my spirit and you're gonna know the power of my resurrection and you will actually be able to love the God who created you and you'll actually be able to love your enemy and you'll actually be able to forgive those who have wronged you so egregiously. And that death... The sting of death is gone only because of the power of his resurrection. It's just hope. I'm just going to be with my dad. No resurrected Jesus, no hope, no life. None of these things we've just listed. You have to know Jesus personally, and you have to know the power of his resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. And Paul says, Jesus is so much better, I'm even happy to share in his sufferings. Guys, we know from experience that people are willing to suffer for a good leader. You'll suffer gladly for a leader that you respect and who has been good to you. It's in our nature. Jesus is so much better than even the best of leaders. Right after Paul became a Christian, Jesus said to him, or said this, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul loved it. He embraced it. He was glad. Complete heart change. And then he says, I need to become like Jesus in his death. There needs to be a death to my rebellion and a death to myself. I need to identify with his death so that I can be made alive to my God in Jesus. He says that by any means possible, I might attain resurrection from the dead. Paul in Romans, we'll read this on the beach later today before we baptize. He says this, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Guys, what Paul is saying is this. To receive the benefit of Jesus' life, you must identify with his death. The rebel you must die. It must die. Death to sin, death to self, alive in Christ, raised with him through the power of his resurrection to a newness of life. To receive the benefit of his life, you must, by faith, identify with his death. So now to invoke the word finally in the true sense of the word, finally, finally. Tom Brady was successful. Most of you men would be him if you could, but you can't. He was successful, but he's empty and he's still searching. In contrast, a guy named Martin Jones, he was a young doctor, had been practicing for five or six years, had a very successful practice, gave up his practice to pursue Jesus. He gave up a lot to follow Jesus. But do you know what he would say later? He said, I gave up nothing and I received everything. That is, heart, that is exactly what your heart will say when you have encountered the resurrected Christ, but only when you have encountered the resurrected Christ by faith. You will, he will ask you to lay down your life, to give it all up, but you will look at that and say, I'm giving up nothing and I am gaining everything in Jesus. Today, we baptized seven people at Araha Beach and I hope you can join us.
But we're baptizing these seven people not so the Father will accept them. You know that, right? Baptism is not for their acceptance. We are baptizing them because the Father has already accepted them in Jesus, and that's what we are announcing through baptism. And that's what Paul says in Philippians 3.12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus has made me his own. He's already done it. He's better. He's so much better. The seven people who are being baptized today know the answer that Brady is searching for. Jesus is better. Friends, Jesus' empty grave is the only antidote for your empty heart. Jesus' empty grave is the only and the best and the better antidote for your empty heart. Let's pray and thank God for his kindness to us in Christ. Father, we thank you for rescuing us. God, I pray that you would give the gift of faith. I pray that you would pour it out generously this morning for all those who are in this room who are hearing these things for the first time and even are maybe to some degree bewildered a little bit or frustrated or angry or discouraged. God, I pray that you would be kind. Father, I pray that you'd be gentle. I pray that through your grace, by your grace and through your spirit, you would awaken dead hearts. And Father, for those who have been professed followers of you for a long time, but have wandered far from your voice and far from your caring arms, Father, I pray that you would sweep them up this morning grab them up, sweep them up, pull them back. Again, not in condemnation. Jesus took all of that for us. And may those who know they're in active rebellion this morning be reminded again that Jesus has already taken all of the consequences for that rebellion. And as a son and a daughter, the only thing they will ever know from you is mercy. And I pray that that mercy would soften their cold, hard hearts. God, I pray that every, every heart in this morning would be filled with joy, not in themselves, not in their goodness, but in Jesus, because he is better and you are so good to us through him. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.